g'day, good afternoon. Uh, my name's Daniel. I'm a member here at Darabin Prezi. Uh, it's my privilege to be preaching tonight on Ruth chapter 2, what we just heard read out. So um, let's pray to God to ask him for our help as we look into this passage. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to us today. Uh, thank you for the gift of your word and that it shows us most fully um, who your son is and the salvation he gives us. And I pray that uh, through your Holy Spirit that you would um, enlighten um, these words to us and show them, uh, show us how they show your Son to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start today by suggesting that we all need to hear the message of Ruth chapter 2 today. Ruth chapter 2 has got things in it that we're all actually desperate for. In Ruth chapter 2, we're going to hear that we can seek grace in God's refuge. We can seek grace in God's refuge. We can experience all the blessings of being found under God's refuge by being under the shelter of his wings. But before we unpack all that from the passage, uh, I'm going to share with you a little story about myself that hopefully will illustrate what's going on in the passage a little bit for you. Uh, so I grew up in a small town called Warrnambool, uh, about three hours southwest of here. Uh, there's actually a pretty strong Warrnambool contingent here at DPC, which is nice. Um, it's about three hours down the southwest coast. I spent the first 19 years of my life down there until 2010, when I moved up to Bandura to study at La Trobe University. Um, and now, initially, that was really a positive thing. I moved up there, it was all really exciting, I was starting my university degree, I'd moved out of home for the first time, I was meeting a whole bunch of new people, I was living on campus, you know, everything was initially really positive. Uh, it was all going well until about uh, halfway through my first year when everything came crashing down. Uh, my grades at uni weren't nearly as good enough as I needed to make a course transfer that I wanted. Uh, I was having a lot of trouble balancing my finances and doing part-time work while I was studying as well. And although I didn't realise it at the time, uh, my relationship with God was at its lowest point that it had ever been, really. And all of this ended up meaning that I had an emotional breakdown. Um, I was really anxious, I was really stressed, I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't finding any joy in life, I was just depressed. And it just so happened that at my lowest point, when I sort of acknowledged to myself that things weren't going really right, that uh, my parents just happened to be visiting that weekend. They happened to come up from Warnbull that weekend. And of course, being my parents, they sort of realised that something was wrong, something was up. And they asked me if I was okay, and I sort of just, you know, shrugged it off and said, you know, I'm fine, don't, don't worry about me. Um, and so, yep, we, we had a chat. Uh, they ended up driving back to the city where they were staying in their apartment, um, and they, they sort of left me out in, out in Bandura there. Well, about an, about an hour later, I called up mum on the phone, and I said, actually, um, things aren't so good. Um, things aren't going so well. Um, I haven't been sleeping. Uh, I'm really stressed out. And I actually started crying to my mum on the phone, which is something really rare for me. Um, the, the last time I'd cried in front of my parents was when I was 10 years old and my pet cockatiel flew away. Um, so, you know, that, you know, that was also pretty sad times. 
Um, anyway, mum and dad uh, drove back out to Bandura from the city, which, you know, when you're living in the country and you're used to everything being five minutes away, that's a big deal. Uh, so they drew, drove out uh, to come and get me. Uh, they picked me up in, in their car. Um, they took me back to where they were staying in the city. Uh, we sat down on the couch. Um, we talked things out. Mum made me a cup of tea. Uh, she put her arms around me. She told me how much she loved me. And we just sat there. And just being there with my parents, I felt safe and protected. I actually didn't feel so depressed. In fact, I was actually a little bit embarrassed uh, because I thought mum and dad might uh, think that I was just making a big deal out of nothing <laughs> because I felt so, you know, I, I was actually doing okay about them. And I, I sort of spent the next few nights there um, just staying in the apartment with them. Um, and it was almost as if that apartment, staying with my mum and dad in the city there, uh, was a, a little little haven, a little refuge where I could escape all the pressures that were um, coming down on me. I knew now that uh, now that my parents knew what was really going on, that uh, everything was going to be okay. They would do everything they could to help me. Uh, even though it took about two years for me to come out of that depression, from that moment in the apartment, I knew that everything was going to be okay. Dad even said, you know, they drive up to Melbourne every weekend if that's what they needed me to do. Uh, they needed, um, I needed them to do. Uh, and so I knew that everything was going to be okay. And as great as it was, at, in that moment, taking refuge in my parents, it's clear that they're not around all the time. And they're not going to be around all the time. I mean, like, they do live three hours away. And, uh, and it's clear that one day they won't be around. They're, they're going to die. And there's also just things that they can't protect me from. Things like, uh, I guess, God's judgment. There are clear limitations to how much of a refuge my parents can be for me. And so I do need something more than them. And I wonder if you felt a deep longing for a refuge in life like that. The desire to have a place where you're secure and comforted. I think that most people realise that you know, we can't find our ultimate security in things that are fleeting like the success of your football team or looking forward to your next you know, nice holiday or whatever it is. But what about the security that comes from your closest family and friends? your closest people in your life? Or maybe uh, what about the security that comes from your own sense of, of self-sufficiency, your own dependency on yourself? Can I suggest that we all need to find our peace, our security, our comfort in something that's bigger than us, something that's more glorious, I reckon something divine. And if you're wondering how all that's possible uh, or what that means for you, then uh, please tune in because in the passage today we're going to be working through this beautiful narrative in the Old Testament uh, from Ruth chapter 2 uh, and we're going to be seeing how Ruth chapter 2 reveals these things about people and about God. So if you have the passage in front of you, that'd be really handy, either on the Connect card or in your Bible. Um, that'd be great if you could be following along with Ruth chapter 2 today. Uh, so you might remember from last week uh, that we're in the time of the Bible, in the land and the time, uh, the time in the land of the Bible, where uh, we're in the time of the judges. 
uh, the wicked, dangerous time of the judges uh, where these events in Ruth are happening. And we're being transported back to Bethlehem, okay? So Bethlehem is about nine kilometres uh, south of Jerusalem in the middle of Israel, or uh, that's about a 36-minute leisurely cycle down there for my fellow peddlers out there. Um, but even if 3,000 years ago they did have um, bicycles, uh, this was not the kind of place you'd want to go out for just a leisurely cycle. This was this was a dangerous time. In fact, I mean, I'd say that I'd rather be contending with a hot and sweaty, lycra-clad cyclist on the way to the CBD rather than be anywhere on the roads in Israel at this time. Um, and that's saying something, like, from personal experience. Um, because in the time of the judges, we read that there was no king in Israel in those days, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. This was a lawless community, a, a place where you couldn't trust anyone. Just a brief flick through the book of Judges will show you that. Um, it's a place where theft, murder, and even rape were commonplace in this society. This is how far the people of Israel had come from God's good and perfect plan for living together. And you can actually see that's the case from the Bible reading that we just had read out by Claire for us just before. If you, if you actually skip ahead in the um, Bible verse to verse 9, uh, where Boaz is talking to Ruth, he says to her, I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. Which is a bit of a weird thing to say, unless that's the expected norm in that society, that someone might lay a hand on a woman. And also skip ahead to verse 22 there, um, where Naomi is talking to Ruth. Um, and she says, stay in Boaz's field because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So we see in general that this is not a safe place, but also specifically for women, this is really not a, a safe place to be. And this is the place that Ruth and Naomi have come to at the end of chapter 1 that we saw last week. They've come to this dangerous place alone. Both of their husbands dead. No hope. This is a very dark time. But at the end of chapter 1, we heard just the smallest glimmer of hope. The last verse of chapter 1 says that Naomi and Ruth returned to Moab, to Bethlehem, uh, returned from Moab to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. They're coming at a time of opportunity. Like Aaron was saying last week, Naomi left her home uh, and she was empty. And now she was coming back home and Although Naomi's outlook is still pretty bitter, don't like don't take notice of what Naomi says here, because remember she's still under this sort of cloud of depression. She's sort of en enveloped by this cloud of depression. She can't see the big picture. But do pay attention to what the author says here, because what the text actually says is that there is some hope. There's food to be found in Bethlehem. The Lord had visited his people, and as as it turns out, like we heard from last week. Naomi's coming home is going to lead to her fullness. And there's actually more good news as we continue on. Ruth chapter 2 starts off with a bit of background information that really jumps out at you immediately. So breaking into the narrative flow of the book of Ruth, uh, the author just gives you this background information. Look there in verse 1. Uh, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, Elimelech, remember Elimelech is Naomi's deceased husband, whose name was Boaz. 
Now, it's actually even more emphatic in the original text, but just even looking in the NIV there, you can see how much it stands out. Just read the next few sentences. It's got nothing to do with Boaz. It's just this bit of information just sitting there for you. The author just rolls on with Naomi and Ruth. And so this little snippet of background information starts off this new section of the book of Ruth with a theme of hope. In fact, as we're about to find out, chapter 2 of the book of Ruth is the turning point of the whole book. It's starting out this new section by saying that Naomi has come back, according to her, with nothing. You see, at the moment, she doesn't really see any value in Ruth at this point. Naomi's come back with no one, but now we find here there is someone. There's a family member, someone who we'll see has the potential to be of great assistance to both Naomi and Ruth. So as we look at this first section of the chapter, which is the first section on your outline in your connect card there, uh, we're going to see that Ruth is seeking grace. She doesn't sit around and wait for someone to come and take pity on her. Uh, She's seeking grace. And we can see that by the way she asks Naomi if she can go out and gather some food. Uh, Let me go out and gather some food in whose eyes I might find favour. That word favour there can sometimes be, or often is translated as grace. And so that's why I'm saying that Ruth is seeking grace in, in whose eyes I might find grace there. And Ruth, turns out, is eligible for a job opportunity in her new country, Israel, uh, to put food on the table for herself and Naomi. Uh, Ruth is apparently aware of some of the laws of Moses that the Israelites were supposed to be obeying at this time, uh, one of which mandated that uh, orphans and widows and foreigners were permitted to glean the fields at harvest time. Uh, So what does it mean to glean the fields? Uh, Tim, if you wouldn't mind putting up a a picture here, uh, we'll see that. So here's a picture of what gleaning is supposed to look like. Uh, The harvesters are going through and reaping the harvest. They're the ones in the background there uh, gathering all the grain. And they were only allowed to go through one time uh, because they had to left, uh, leave what was left over after their first going through for people like Ruth, the lowly in society, to come and pick up so that they had some food for themselves. Uh, so here it is, the Old Testament law. This is way back from Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. And this law gets repeated again in Leviticus and it gets brought up in the book of Deuteronomy as well. So there's a bit of an emphasis going on here. And in Deuteronomy there, Moses highlights that uh, there's three specific qualifications for people to be doing this. They're, They're for the fatherless, for the foreigner, and for the widow. And notice here that Ruth is the, like, she fits the criteria for all three of those. Uh, she's a foreigner, she's from the land of Moab, uh, she has left her father's house, and her husband is dead. She's a widow. You can take that one down now. Thanks, Tim. So the law is, don't pick up after yourself. Leave it for those who are less fortunate than you are. This is what social welfare looked like 3,000 years ago. And there's just a bit of a side note to pick up on here, uh, that if you've been a Christian for some time, 
uh, or if you're just looking into Christianity, you might have heard or even had some thoughts yourself about uh, a, a difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament being the violent, angry God, and the God of the New Testament being the one who shows so much love and grace and mercy, or at least that's how the critique goes. Well, then look at what these laws here say about the violent and angry God of the Old Testament. He's showing grace and compassion to the lowest of the low in society. I think that's a bit interesting. This is the God that Ruth and Naomi are putting their hope in. You might not be able to say they're fully putting their hope in him just right now, but they're giving it a shot. They've come back to Bethlehem with nothing. Naomi's really bitter. Ruth's at least a little bit more optimistic because she's ready to go up and go into the fields and gather some food. But Naomi just says to Ruth in verse 2 there, go ahead, my daughter. Or it's not even that much, it's just go, my daughter. Not much else said Naomi. Not so much as a good luck or hope it goes well or here I packed your lunch for you. No, just go. Naomi's still a tad bitter right now. Now, this is where the fun part begins. Let's check out verse 3. Uh, Ruth goes into the field and what do you know it? As it turned out, she happened to be working in the field that belonged to Boaz, who was in the clan of Elimelech. Wink, wink. Lucky her, I guess. So it actually says that uh, by chance she happened upon the field of Boaz, or like literally it says her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz, which is just like incredibly sarcastic by the author at this point to say something like that. Like seriously, at the start of this chapter, he's giving you a neon billboard saying, hey guys, this guy Boaz is going to be super important here, so pay attention. And then he just says, oh, you know, but she just happened to come across the field of Boaz. That's, that's not what's going on. What actually is going on is this is a bit of a backwards way of telling us that God's sovereign hand is directing his purposes in this situation. He's led Ruth to exactly the spot that she needs to be. Now, in verses 4 to 6, we come to the part of the story where we actually get to meet Boaz. And as we're reading through, I want you to see if you can notice how Boaz is showing us God's character by living in line with God's laws. There's a couple of examples here of how Boaz is reflective of God himself. And even you might say that Boaz shows us a little bit of something of what Jesus is like too. You could also see Boaz's field that he's got going on here as some sort of uh, refuge. In fact, it's a refuge that God has deliberately led Ruth to. And remember, we're talking today about how we can find grace in God's refuge. And I think in the case with Ruth and Boaz, we can see a really good example of that here. So, verse 4, Boaz arrives with a big hearty, the Lord be with you. Just try that one at work tomorrow, see how it goes down. The Lord be with you. Um, and the, the people respond appropriately, of course, and we might just pass over this as some sort of just general you know, salutation, something on par with, you know, hi, how you going? But remember we're in the dark, evil time of the judges, and so people certainly aren't godly enough to just be mentioning the Lord, the God of Israel, in just a general greeting like this. But Boaz does. He acknowledges the Lord. And... He cares about his workers so much that he wants the Lord to be with them. 
And in fact, we'll, we'll see that Boaz cares about all the workers in his field, including this new worker who's come into the field, Ruth the Moabite, that he sees. Um, and so Boaz has got a young man, as we'll see reading down further through the um, passage there, a young man who's in charge of the workers in his field, a young man who's in charge of the reapers. Uh, and he asks, you know, who is this young woman? And the report of Ruth is incredibly admirable. She hasn't wasted any time capitalizing on this new, uh, these social welfare benefits in her new country, Israel. Uh, she's making the most of her time and gleaning the fields because the report is she's been there since the first thing in the morning and she's had hardly any rest. So Boaz is obviously pretty impressed with this new young woman gleaning the fields. Um, look at the first interaction that they have together there in verse 8. Boaz says to Ruth, don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. Now that all seems pretty nice, but actually at the moment Boaz is just sort of playing by the rules. But look at what he says next to Ruth there. Whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. This is the first bit of grace that we see that Boaz is showing to Ruth. Now, please remember, this is 3,000 years ago, so the water that he's offering Ruth here doesn't come out of a tap. It comes out of a well that people have had to go and get up early and get out, get into jars and bring back to the field, and there's a limited supply of it, and Boaz has like, presumably got a fair few people working for him, right, because he's a sort of wealthy, upstanding man, and so he wants them to be hydrated so that they get... He gets a good harvest, basically. So this isn't just a formality. This is great. And remember here, we're keeping note on how Boaz models God's character. And Ruth sort of knows that she's been shown so much grace. She's actually overwhelmed so much so that Boaz has to explain to her uh, why he's showing this grace to her. He says that it's because of the loyalty that he's heard of that she has shown to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And then comes the central verse of the whole chapter. Read verse 12 with me. Stephen, somebody made the print larger on the connect card there. I saw there. I don't know who did that, but thanks. Um, Verse 12. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. If you have your own Bible with you, you should highlight verse 12, or if you've just got one of the pew Bibles, you should just stare at that verse really intently. Um, Ruth has come to take refuge under the wings of the God of Israel, and she's being richly rewarded for it. Let's just pause for a sec, and let's just ask the question, what does it mean to take refuge under someone's wings? Well, the biblical image here is certainly that of a bird protecting her young chicks to keep the chicks warm and to keep them safe from predators, she spreads out her wings over her chicks and encircles them and brings them in close to her. That's the sort of the the fullness and the closeness of refuge that's being described here. It's not some sort of distant refuge where, oh, you'll be safe over there somewhere. It's actually come as close as you can towards me and I'll protect you. It's that same sort of closeness that David picks up on this in the Psalms a couple of times. Psalm 17, he says, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, he says again, 
uh, I take refuge in you. I take refuge in the shadow of your wings. It's the same words. It's the same idea. It's a very close and loving protection. That's what it means to take refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. So back to our passage here. Remember I said that chapter 2 is the turning point of the whole book of Ruth. And verse 12 here is like the apex of that turning point. Verse 12 is crucial. We've got, remember here, we've got Ruth the foreigner. Ruth, the, the foreigner from Moab, the widowed foreigner from Moab. She's got the lowest of low status in this society. As we saw before, she's the object of all three of those uh, social welfare laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. This brave and loyal woman takes a chance with the widowed mother of her dead husband to come to a country that she's never known before. She's in desperate need for somebody to show her grace. She's seeking refuge. And through God's sovereign hand over these events, Ruth receives the grace that she needed under the refuge provided by being under the wings of the God of Israel. Boaz puts it all together in that beautiful one sentence there in verse 12. But notice there that Boaz isn't claiming to be the source of the blessing himself. He's giving that credit back to God. It's not Boaz's wings that Ruth has come to take refuge under. It's the wings of the God of Israel. Even though it literally is Boaz who's the one that's providing her with these blessings. Boaz is the one giving her water and giving her extra grain and inviting her over for dinner, basically. Uh, But he's careful to give the glory back to God. So Boaz is God's instrument here. It's under the God of Israel his protection that Ruth had come, under his watchful care. Now remember, I asked you to think about how Boaz reflects God's character, and we'll, we'll see if we keep reading in the passage here uh, a few more examples of how that happens. Uh, in this conversation, Boaz asks his workers to leave more, gra- uh, leave more grain behind for her. Um, she, he's showing her extra grace going above and beyond the law, what the law requires. And it ends up that Ruth goes home and she's got about two weeks' worth of food with her after one day's work. Amazing. And I think that's actually a really wonderful image of how God shows us grace above and beyond what we need, above and beyond what we deserve. It's most evident through the salvation that we have in Christ, but also in the day-to-day blessings that God just pours out on us. He gives us everything we need. It's grace upon grace. And that's how Boaz's character is reflecting God here. And that all sounds, you know, really lovely and inspiring and whatever. Or at least I thought it did. But it, here's, here's the thing. Um, some of us just don't do that. You know, Ruth sought grace under the refuge of the God of Israel. But like for, for a lot of us, We just don't relate to God like that. Some of us only relate to God as if he's the one that we owe the huge debt to, a debt that can never be replayed because of all our failings and all our sin. And so what ends up happening in our minds is God becomes like the bank manager and we're the debtors. God knows how much we owe him and that's all that we can think about. 
And how do we usually relate to somebody that we owe a lot of money to or that we owe a, a huge favour to? How do we usually relate to somebody like that? We avoid them, don't we? I mean, I don't know, I, I do. We don't want to face the shame of being uh, reminded of how much we owe someone. And if that's the only way that we relate to God as someone that we owe big time, then won't we just avoid him just the same? We'll avoid him rather than coming to take refuge under his wings like he offers us. And if you, like me, feel a bit that way sometimes, um, then remember how Ruth has acted here in these past few chapters and how she's going to act in the um, following weeks on Ruth. She knows she's got nothing. And yet she's come to seek grace under the wings of the God of Israel. She's come to take refuge under him. Now, I'll finish up today by having a brief look at this last section in the chapter, the last section on your outline, which is hope for the future. Uh, We've seen how Ruth sought grace, ultimately under the wings of refuge of the God of Israel. That refuge was provided through God's instrument of blessing, Boaz. And so, like Ruth, we need to seek grace in the God of Israel. And the instrument of God's blessing is the descendant of Boaz, the man also from Bethlehem, Jesus Christ. Boaz was born in Bethlehem. He was the ancestor of King David. Jesus was also born in Bethlehem, and he's called the son of David. Uh, Ruth found refuge uh, in the God of Israel through God's instrument of blessing, which was Boaz. We can find refuge under the God of Israel uh, through his ultimate uh, instrument of blessing, which is Jesus. It's only through his death that we can approach God. Sinful people like us have no right to come into God's presence, let alone be held as close as being described as being in his refuge or under his wings. But now by faith in Christ, we can approach him with confidence that we may receive grace and find grace in our time of need, as it says in Hebrews 4. And we'll see in this last section of the text that uh, Boaz is said to be Ruth's redeemer. He redeems her. We can approach God because Christ is our Redeemer. He's redeemed us at great cost to himself. And so now, looking back down at the text at verse 20, isn't that interesting? That That's how Boaz is described by Naomi in this section. Naomi is elated to find that Ruth has sort of happened across the field of Boaz. Um, and she says that this man is our relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. Boaz is Ruth's redeemer, Christ is our redeemer. And now Adam and Aaron are going to unpack exactly what that means in the coming weeks on Ruth. Uh, But what ends up happening is, and this is a bit of a spoiler alert, which you know we're a bit fond of in this series apparently, just getting ahead of ourselves. Um, But what happens is Boaz ends up redeeming Ruth. He ends up marrying her, becoming her husband. And so I think there's really strong connection here between what, what Boaz is doing for Ruth and what Christ is doing for us. Like I said, Boaz was Ruth's redeemer, Jesus is our redeemer. Boaz obeyed the law of God and even showed grace above and beyond the um, the law of God. Jesus is the one who perfectly obeyed the law of God and fulfilled it. Uh, Boaz showed grace to a foreigner. 
Jesus shows grace to us, the foreigners, the people from outside God's covenant people. Boaz's field was a bit of a refuge to Ruth, a bit of a protection from physical harm and starvation and of poverty. Jesus, through his death on the cross, is a refuge to us from God's wrath. That's why we sing, Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Safe from wrath and make me pure. That's why we sing those lines. And at the end of the story, spoiler, Boaz marries Ruth. And as for us, Christ enters into a covenant relationship with us that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes or likens to a marriage, similar. And it's this prospect of a potential husband for Ruth that's got Naomi all excited. Remember the cloud of bitterness that she was under, that she couldn't see the big picture? Well, now all of a sudden this uh, abundant food and the mention of the name Boaz has made her do a full 180 in her mood because she realises now that there's hope for the future. And if at this point of the story Naomi was comforted that much and excited by even the prospect that Boaz might marry Ruth, how much more should we be comforted and excited that Christ has already redeemed us. He's already done the work. It's finished, were his last dying words on the cross. And he's proven that he does have the power to save to the uttermost those who seek refuge in him, because Christ is the perfect descendant of Boaz who lives forever. He's able to be our refuge forever. You see, uh, Boaz's ability to bless Ruth was actually limited because his life was limited. But Christ lives forever because he's risen from the dead, and so there are no limits on the amount of blessing that he can provide. Boaz is able to offer material blessings to Ruth, but Christ is able to offer spiritual blessings. That's far greater. So whether you're here tonight and you're not sure what you think about Jesus and looking into Christianity, or if you're already a Christian and have been for some time, the message tonight is the same. We're all to seek grace in God's refuge. Some of you need to do that for the very first time. And I'll acknowledge that nothing in this life can protect you forever. You need to put your faith in Jesus. And if you are a Christian, you know, uh, you need to know that at all times, uh, not just at our lowest points, but in all circumstances, you should seek grace in God's refuge. Come close to Him. His grace is sufficient for us, sufficient to live our lives, live them abundantly, not to scrape by, spiritually speaking, but to live our lives to the full. We can all experience the closeness, that intimacy with God. That 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 instance, that closeness that our human relationships they only give us a, a small hint of. We can experience that closeness and security that we all long for. How do we experience that kind of grace? By being found only in God's refuge. God's refuge, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that. Through Jesus' death on the cross, you did provide a refuge uh, from your wrath that we can now approach to you with confidence and that we can come close to you. Please, I pray that uh, by your spirit, you will remind us and encourage us to uh, continue 
Jesus Christ in your life. Thank you, Jesus.